0: The focus of this was sort of to get stories to come out of the game, right? People aren't going to tell a story, an interesting story about, you know, I I got hit and I lost seven hit points. But if it was, I, I got hit and I lost my right hand and dropped my weapon, then suddenly that's a moment, right? And everyone understands that.
2: Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, Karen Hahn.
3: And I am your other host, Isaac Butler.
2: Hello, Isaac. So who did you talk to for this week's episode?
3: This week I talked to Tarn and Zach Adams, their brothers, and together they created the video game Dwarf Fortress, which is, well, one of the most important games of the century.
2: Whoa. Well, can you explain to us, well, number one, how you came across Dwarf Fortress, and then number two, why it's one of the most important games of the century?
3: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I actually don't remember how I first came across it, probably just because like I like colony sim games, which is Mm -hmm. at its heart what Dwarf Fortress is. It actually kind of birthed that genre and it remains both the most complicated and the weirdest game in that genre. (laughs) And so I've wanted to interview the Adams Brothers for a long time because Dwarf Fortress is just it's a totally bizarre Quixotic, eccentric experiment of a game that not only created the genre of the colony sim, but it's incredibly influential. Without Dwarf Fortress, there's no The Sims, there's no Minecraft, there's no Don't Starve, there's probably no Fortnite, actually it's like that Mm. influential and it's also the life's work of these two brothers they've been working on it for 20 years they have at least 20 more years of things they want to put in the game because the game involves all these in-depth systems that are running in the background and procedural generation and stuff and they just have systems upon systems upon systems that they still want to build it's really a kind of original achievement and no one else has done anything like it in this extremely young art form of video games. The other thing is that it was in an open beta for 20 years, which means people could play it for free. And they recently started selling it. They decided they would like put nice graphics on it and sell it. And they became like instant multimillionaires as a result when they had only ever made money off a PayPal tip jar up till that point. (laughs) So I was also just like really interested in like, why would you do any of this?
2: So really quickly, as an aside, for any of our listeners who might not be familiar with the genre, what is a colony sim?
3: That's a great question. A colony sim is a game where you are building the living environment of usually procedurally generated characters so these are characters the game is creating for you and you have to help them survive and thrive and be happy and usually accomplish some objective or another through what resources you're harvesting what buildings you're crafting what upgrades you choose things like that
2: well thank you so much for the rundown i am so excited to check this conversation out but before we get to it what can slate plus listeners look forward to this week
3: Well, I think you as an art history major will really enjoy Slate Plus this week, Karen. Uh, Although if you're not an art history major listeners, you'll still enjoy it. Because believe it or not, (laughs) Dwarf Fortress is in the permanent collection of the Museum of Modern Art.
1: Mm -hmm. And
3: it was actually purchased for that purpose way before the Adams Brothers became well-known or well-connected in the games community. It's actually one of the things that put them on the map for the rest of the games community. And so I just wanted to ask about how that happened and what they thought about it and how it changed their careers and lives.
2: I am so excited to check that out. And slate plus members will hear that at the end of the episode. But if you're not a Slate Plus member but want to hear that segment, why not join Slate Plus? As a member, you'll get no ads on any of our podcasts, unlimited reading on the Slate site, and member-exclusive episodes and segments from our show and other shows like The Waves, Culture Gap Fest, and Amicus. Sign up for Slate Plus now at slate.com workingplus to access all of Slate's content and to support our work. All right, let's hear Isaac's conversation with Tarn and Zach Adams.
3: Zach and Tarn Adams, thank you so much for joining us today on Working to talk about your process. All right. Yeah, good to be here. And just so our listeners have some hope of telling your voices apart, since this is an audio podcast, uh, which one of you is which?
4: Okay, so I'm Zach, and uh, yeah, I'm Tarn.
3: <laughs> it's funny because normally when we have um, collaborative teams here on working, you know, writing teams or whatever, we tend to ask them, oh, where did you meet? How did you start working together? But of course you two are brothers. So I guess instead the question is, how'd you decide to start doing game development together?
4: Zach, you go first. So this is, uh, we, we kind of grew up in the age of the computer, like uh, the personal computer rather. Mm -hmm. And our dad taught us how to program when I was five years old and Tarn was even younger. Yeah, I don't remember a
0: time without computers where I was learning to code the same time I was
4: learning to read the same time I was learning to add numbers together. Mm. We were really good at algebra when we we finally aged into that. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing.
3: So, obviously, we are here to mostly talk about Dwarf Fortress, which is a game you've been working on for literal decades, and people have been playing it for... Almost all of that time, but in a kind of constantly evolving beta, you know, it, it wasn't for sale, you you know, but but now it is. You can buy it with graphics and music and, you know, uh, we're going to keep talking about how it's continued to evolve as well. But first, for our listeners who are just kind of unfamiliar with what the game is, you know, how
4: do you explain Dwarf Fortress? So it is like uh, one of the first colony sims where you craft different goods and stuff to help your your colony survive right
0: the basic pitch is that you've got a settlement of dwarves that are uh, you know working in workshops facing dangers and so forth and then there's kind of the the broader picture that we sort of aspire to be a fantasy world
3: simulator
4: right i dare say <laughs> the most complicated fantasy world simulator out there
3: yeah. But, except for the one that is simulating our world, of
4: course. Yes, yes. yes. Well,
3: we yes. probably Well, that's not a
0: fantasy I, yeah. I that's, <laughs> that's, that's a gritty urban and uh rural yeah.
3: sim. <laughs> now, your game is in a lot of other games DNA that you know our listeners may not have played Dwarf Fortress, but if you've played Minecraft, the creator of Minecraft has credited Dwarf Fortress as his major inspiration. Fortnite has a lot of dwarf fortress in it. If you're ever you know, crafting something to survive and making a base. It's probably somehow inspired by Dwarf Fortress. But I'm interested in, you know, what is in the DNA of the game for you? Like when you were starting to work on it, what games were you thinking about or what was influencing you? You know, what was in
4: the the cauldron that, that created Dwarf Fortress? So it was a lot of, uh, I mean, obviously, like, movies and books and stuff, but fantasy novels and stuff like that, mm-hmm. and Dungeons and & Dragons. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the like, for video games, it would be, like, Ultima. This is, like, because yeah. there's two parts of Dwarf Fortress. I don't know if we didn't even get into that. There's the base building door part of Dwarf Fortress, and then there's Adventure Mode, which is, like, a regular RPG. Well, not regular. It's pretty strange. But <laughs> that, that part hasn't even got into the... Uh, the steam the the part that we're selling now only has the fortress mode and the adventure part which is going to come and shock the world I'm sure <laughs> is the uh is the second mode which is coming out later our fans wanted uh, both of them to come out at the same time but we had to say you know do you want to wait another Year, year or two, year yeah, or two. it was already yeah. three years, you know, and wait. so they got fortress mode only. But fortress mode is by far the most popular one, yeah, mm. which
0: is odd because we we started with the RPGs, the games that we were working on before, starting from like age 11, 12, were all just like role playing games. We never really had a settlement management game at all, yeah, that was even, even
4: through our our 20s, yeah, right. yeah, that wasn't the idea at all. It was just, uh, it, we, uh, what it was, it was you would make this colony. And then it would get destroyed because you would dig too deep and release monsters. And 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 you would uh, and the whole idea was to fail because then you would go into adventure mode and go back into your own dungeon that you had created. And the treasures that your dwarves had left after they got creamed by monsters would be there. And it would be just like a dungeon dive from Dungeons and Dragons. It would be completely set up to be, you know, oh, wow, now now I get to play this game. So can you
3: talk me through a little bit in those early couple years maybe of how it wound up ballooning into, you know, what it became, how it became much more about building the fortress than it did about adventuring. And then when the kind of procedural generation and uh, simulation comes in, because just for our listeners who may not understand, uh, and we'll talk about this more later, I'm sure when you play the game, it is generating a world for you that only exists for your playthrough through these procedures. And that includes hundreds of years of history. Um, It's a whole world. You only are playing through a little bit of that world and the whole rest of the world is going on at the same time. I imagine it took quite a while to get from that idea you articulated to even thinking about, well, what if we just fuck it? Let's simulate a world. So I'm just sort of wondering what was the process that led to that? How did you figure
4: out that that's what you were going to do? It was because, Dwarf Fortress wasn't the beginning of the creation of this. It was back, way back when, when we were making an RPG that had a giant world like that. It was called Slaves to Armok, God of Blood, and we were just going to say that one more time. One more time. It was called Slaves to Armok, God of Blood. Amazing.
3: Okay, keep going. Was
4: the was the very first. uh, Version of this game, and it was a uh, it was going to just going to be freeware. We're just going to you know the the name is ridiculous. We didn't care. We yeah, just it, to it was in fact freeware we we released it for four yeah, years, of, right? Um, it was completely free and 3D graphics. We mm-hmm. had 3D graphics.
0: We the philosophy at the time was we've we've had a few of these in the past. They've fallen apart for various reasons. Well, let's work from the bottom up this time. Just a terrible idea. And so we built built it. We had tissues. It would describe your arm hair and stuff. I mean, this was this was a 3D game, but it's still a lot of text. It was very text heavy, and it had all the different flash points. And like I remember, we made a demon that had eyeballs that were affected by sunlight. So if it ever went out in the light, its eyes would catch on fire, and the model would kind of have these flames shooting out of its eyes. Wow. just strange uh, prioritization. Here, but this is leading to why Dwarf Fortress right. ended up the way it did. Yeah, yeah. Dwarf Fortress, uh, like on the side, we released these really simple graphics games. Like we had a text game called Liberal Crime Squad. We had a 2D game called World War One Medic. That uh, those were the the two that got any kind of traction at all as side projects. And Dwarf Fortress was just going to be a side project. It's a text game. We throw it together put it out in a couple months. And so we're sitting here working on the first part of it, which is the fortress mode, right? It was going to be fortress mode, then adventure mode. So we have these little workshops and we have these little people with smiley faces, just text smiley faces, walking around, doing jobs, digging into the side of a mountain. And everything was so fast compared to the slog that we had been doing that we're like, oh, this is a fantasy game. Let's just start pulling some of these Armok ideas in and it never stopped.
4: Yeah, the, the four
0: years of this.
4: Right, we, we realized, <laughs> and and this is funny because it's like it's being undone now that we're releasing with graphics and stuff that we've been working on for three years with the artists. But it's because in the beginning there were no graphics, so we could make it as crazy as we wanted to. We could add so much stuff because we weren't worried about having to make it 3D and whatnot because we were. Using the, uh, what was it, ASCII code. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah So, so yeah. for our yeah. listeners
3: who haven't seen Old School Dwarf Fortress, and you can, of course, Google image search if you want, it's all ASCII characters. It's just letters and numbers and little brackets and parentheses and stuff. Like, the dwarves are represented by, like, a little yellow smiley face. I forget what it is. It's well, that's, a little... a, that's
0: a carpenter. Yeah. That, yeah a carpenter yeah. is a yellow smiley face, but, like, a fisher dwarf would be
4: a blue one. Right. And a one is a G. And a it's goat the, is a G. Just the letter G, G right. Just a letter G. (laughs) So
3: by the time you're releasing it to the public in the kind of long beta in 2006, was the idea originally that it would just kind of exist in this form and you would keep tinkering with it forever? Was the idea that you were just going to play test it for a little bit with the public for a couple of years and then you'd be done? Like, at what point did this become, for lack of a less hoity-toity way of talking about it, your life's work?
4: It was when we realized that everything could be displayed in a 3D ASCII environment. That's kind of like the,
0: the sort of, this can be the, I don't know, ER project or whatever that can absorb all our dreams. And then there's the other, the other question, which is like, how can we possibly survive on this?
4: Right. Right. And then, but there was the point at which we did, the reason that we're successful actually financially and all that is because we created a community. Mm-hmm. We had our own website And uh, just people kept flocking to it because the game was just so weird, (laughs) like elephants on fire trampling through your fortress, giant uh, carp eating your dwarves. That kind of stuff just went through the Internet and brought us so many different people that just spread the word. And that's the reason we were successful.
3: And how much of your day to day job is managing or interacting with that community as opposed to working on the actual game? Like, do you spend a lot of time? you know, interacting with users and talking to them, or is it more that you just created a home where they could come to and do all that stuff themselves? I mean, there's a monthly Q and a we do over there and this, this takes like an entire day um, right. a month. I mean, it's part is, of your creative process is how you create the audience for your work. Right. Yeah.
0: We, we interact with those with suggestions, at least passively, uh, looking at, at um, the, the giant forum that
4: we release our financials every
0: month. Yeah. yeah right. The, the Bay, 12, Bay 12 report. Um, that's just been a big part of how things operate uh we haven't yet crossed the uh the bridge of how that's going to work
3: next month next month we we should say is when you become actually wealthy because the first payments from steam start arriving yeah Um,
0: they just start arriving we just do we put that in the financial report now right which you've been very open
3: about in interviews and stuff that you know like i mean you can go on steam and look right now it's uh, you've made millions of dollars if I remember correctly since the game finally officially get, went on sale which is a life-changing thing to contemplate but even before that like how were you surviving did you you took donations did you do Kickstarters are you doing work for other people as well are you uh it was
4: just a uh, contribution from yeah, the fans just, yeah it was, it was just like a uh, button yeah we had a tip jar I'm trying to think of what's that called uh when PBS uh, yeah, oh, the pledge, pledge drive. Drive. the pledge
0: drive. Yeah, we did. We yeah, we had an, we had, we had a pledge drive for adding animals to the game. We added two hundred animals to the game, and of course, our our uh, our fans are quite practical and mercenary. So the bee one, so that we could add uh, uh, honey and wax, and right, right. And it, we we spent a month doing that. Um, yeah, that was great. That was that was. We made nine thousand dollars or something that month.
2: We'll be back with more of Isaac's conversation with Tarn and Zach Adams.
1: rules and restrictions may apply.
2: Hello, listeners, we want to hear from you, whether it's to ask us for advice on a creative problem, tell us a guest you'd like to hear on the show, or to share your own creative triumphs, drop us a line at at workingatslate.com or give us a ring at 304-933-WORK. And if you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's return to Isaac's conversation with Tarn and Zach Adams. So,
3: as we've said, there's tons of systems. There's systems within systems. There's systems interacting with each other in the background that you'll never know are there. You know, the the dwarves mood Uh might depend on the weather, you know, and then the weather is its own thing. You've been adding, revising, tinkering with them. So other than when fans request them or when you, you get the sense the audience wants them, how do you know that a new system
4: is needed? I think it's the what? Wouldn't it be cool if and then just jam it in there?
0: Yeah, I mean that's we we had a process previously where we we uh, the focus of this was sort of to get stories to come out of the game, right? We we enjoyed playing games and telling telling stories to each other, and we actually had a notebook back in high school. We'd pass back and forth like you write a chapter, I write a chapter, and how can we make this happen? How can we make this story happen in a game? And uh, really just picking over sentence by sentence, just saying, you know, what what kind of mechanics would be needed to get this to happen. And then you see then, even though we've kind of moved away from that process. Yeah. You,
4: it's so <laughs> much. That, that process was a lot of work, though. I mean, I spent so many uh, years writing these stories because we would uh, write the stories and along with crayon drawings give them to the people that donated to us. And so I spent such, so much of my time writing these stories that we uh, kind of farmed for uh, ideas. Yeah, for the, I mean, it's the, easy to write an idea uh, down. And then, right. I mean, especially if you consider
0: something like conversations in a story, I mean, you can sit there and pick apart how maybe you get this conversation to arise, but that's still like an open field in computer science, right? It's, yes. It's, and so so we, you can only do so much with that method. And you, you still have to think to yourself, you know, what is the most important thing or what is going to give you the most um, story juice? I suppose uh, from uh, the mechanism, and that's that's just a that's kind of the art and craft of the whole thing. Hmm. That's the core of it, and is figuring out what kinds of mechanics produce the most stories. And we have a feel for that, and we've only you know more recently tried to theorize about you know what is what is actually going on there, uh, so that you know you could articulate it to other people.
4: Yeah, I think the most important thing, though, with a game like this and a simulation is the procedural aspect to it, right? It's like you got to get that. You got to get so many systems working together that they create something unexpected. Right, because, I mean,
3: you can build a lot of systems that do something, whatever it is, but like building them in such a way that. A random player sitting down to open the game and start playing it stands a very good chance of having an interesting narrative experience. That's not easy. That's a really complicated thing to attempt. Yeah, so I
0: mean. Uh, yeah, looking back at Armok with the arm hair curliness, right? right. I and mean, this is when I when we said this is a horrible approach starting from the bottom up. It's because it didn't lead to stories, right. unless they were stories about arm hair, which people don't tell, right. right? They so so you you have to start with bigger picture stuff. But the problem with starting bigger picture stuff is you don't have enough little morsels for it to work. Like right. the game doesn't have pieces to work with, and so you have to do it all. And that's why it's taken twenty years. <laughs> <But> so, <laughs> so so <laughs> you've
3: said you've only you know some of it's intuitive, and you've only recently learned how to kind of talk about it and describe it to other people. Can I pick your brain a bit about what you've learned and and how you theorize working these procedural systems so that they generate satisfying narrative? Because, you know, for our listeners who don't know, (laughs) the game is... Even just reading about people's experiences of the game are very entertaining. If you go to the Steam website right now and read the reviews of the game, it is just people talking about all the crazy shit that's happened to them in this game. Um, But yeah, so what have you learned about how to create a satisfying narrative experience out of a narrative that you don't control, that a process is controlling.
0: The starting point was these, was these stories that we were telling. And then you start to get enough pieces. I like I mean, the simple examples are things like um, the body part system and so forth, not the curliness of the hair, but just the fact that there's no hit points, right? We were talking about D D before mm-hmm. these simple abstractions, like people aren't going to tell a story, an interesting story about, like, you know, I, I, I got hit and I lost seven hit points, but If it was, I I got hit and I lost my right hand and dropped my weapon and was no longer able to defend myself, then suddenly that's a moment, right? And everyone
3: understands that. That's interesting because, you know, there's a movement within tabletop RPGs towards that as well with like the Powered by the Apocalypse system and stuff like that to, to focus much more on storytelling and much less on hit points and things like that.
4: Yeah, I think at this point we should say that the stories that we were writing are kind of like Monty Python-esque right. or so, because they're like they're they are ridiculous. We yeah, were yeah. Well, these are not serious things. We were trying <laughs> to get the reason that the carp are eating the dwarves is because it's just completely ridiculous, and that's right. where we're but, going. But but you don't need the thing is like the ridiculousness comes for free. <laughs>
0: pretty much because the computer is going to just do anything with the stuff that you've given it. Mm. And uh, most of it's not going to be normal. So it's it's it like, you just add, add those, you know, if you add fish and you add biting, you know, you'll have that kind of stuff happening. <laughs> and you just know that, that you can, you, you're going to get a story because, the level of the mechanic is it's visible to the player. You have to have exposition there. You have to have the ability to investigate what's going on. Like the player needs to be able to pause, take a breather and and see something strange, even if it's just like a flashing icon over, over a creature or something or a new alert pause and just be able to check out like what is going on here and then they you know they might see there's a dwarf is crying or something and we have ways to investigate that you can look at their thoughts and it could be like oh they they were crying because they were just haunted by the ghost of their their dead brother or something and you're like okay now i've got a story and like this is this is when it comes back to just having a good interface which is something that we hadn't had and that we're 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 hoping will really kind of open things up Uh, even more, uh, get so many more people playing the game, but also experienced players notice, like we had a person playing the game for like 15 years or something didn't know that there was like a detailed health breakdown by date of what had happened in the hospital right so it's like you know on the on the the 23rd day of the eight month or
4: or whatever like sutures were applied to this wound or rotten tissue was excised and so forth there's just so many systems like that that i mean the the problem that we had for the longest time that the steam release is kind of fixed is That you just don't notice that stuff, right? There's just not shown at all. And in the in the ASCII version, it's hard enough just to play the game, but to find everything in these nested menus that would allow you to see that there were sutures at all, nonetheless, that you're keeping track of them.
3: Well, I will say, you know, every work of art, there's all sorts of stuff most audience members don't notice, right? It's like, you know, in a book, they don't know, understand why this word is in that sentence or whatever. In a film, there's details in the background that a set designer has put in that are, of course, extremely important that, you know, most audience members uh, don't see. Um, because you mentioned the complexity of the menus and stuff, one of the things that Dwarf Fortress is famous for is that it's like not the most user friendly amenable to the first time user series of things deliberately so and i just wonder if you could talk a little bit about sort of making the the player come to you and learn or come to the game and learn how the game is played and how that's part of the process of being part of this world
0: yeah i mean it's like it's like you want people to be able to engage and do the things they want to do And that requires them to become an expert player in a way,
4: Mm -hmm. whereas
0: like a lot of games now will use an approach with like unlock systems, tech trees uh, and sort of onboarding slowly through the systems and menus will kind of unspool over time. And it might not be for, you know, 20 hours until the last option becomes unlocked. Right. And it's, you know,
4: just not the direction we wanted to take with the game, it would be yeah, of, axi- I suppose, but. We kind of accidentally came into this system that really worked for us though. So it's like, it wasn't by design really at first that we made the learning, people talk about the learning, the steep learning curve that's a cliff. It's like, it really helped us become popular, but it wasn't really intentional. Mm-hmm. We were just, it just kept growing and growing and growing. And we kind of lost uh, track of the user interface at some point. Yeah, no, that
3: makes total sense. I mean, to be clear, I'm not criticizing the user interface. It's just one of the things that people notice about well, it. Well, feel free, though. No, no, yeah, no. yeah.
4: <laughs> like we, had to work, we worked for three years to fix this, and uh, right. that's all we did. We didn't add anything new, just fix the, the user interface for three years.
3: So one of the things that anyone who plays this game is going to experience is catastrophe and failure. But one of the things that trains you in is that this is a narrative experience and narratives end. You know, you don't beat a short story. The short story ends. And sometimes they end uh, uh, badly. You mentioned before that often the systems will take care of failure on their own without you having to do much like if you build giant carp and you tell them that they can eat things eventually they're going to eat the dwarves right but could you just talk a little bit about how you think about failure and how or whether you even would call it failure or catastrophe or whatever and how you think of
4: it creatively as part of the creative process of this game i think the legends mode is the answer to this it's like we always wanted a uh, like a leaderboard a high score list or something like that that would tell you that you uh, did something and maybe that you did better or worse than your last game but you did something and it needs to be recorded and uh that's the starting place i think
3: yeah so what can you explain legends mode in a little more depth and how it relates to the game as
4: is so legends mode is is the list of everything that has ever happened in your world and you would have to type in like the name of the dwarf and it's kind of like a database more than yeah, all. like a wiki. It's like going to Wikipedia for your own world. You can yeah. look at the pages
0: for characters. You can actually, that's one of the things we added for the steam version is a tab browser. So it really is like Wikipedia. Now you can just open up a tab for like a fortress, even a fortress you've played like legends are not just the past. They're also everything you've done. Hmm. And there's this other idea though, that, that kind of runs with this, which is a, a, a phrase we put in the original manual for the game. Uh, just kind of highlighting it when you read through the introduction to the manual. And then it says, remember, losing is fun. And it's really to get people, and we put, consciously put that in there, so that people would would know that you're supposed to play the game multiple times in the same world, that it's supposed to roll on. Uh, that you're not supposed to just, I mean, in fact, it was difficult in the original versions to just kind of save and reload and save and reload. Like you get used to that from so many other games just to try and, you, and, and because that's just how they're designed, you, you need to sort of execute well enough that you don't really retain any record of your failure at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas here, uh, your failures are hopefully interesting enough that you want to retain them so that if you make a second fortress say the few survivors from the original fortress will come right and have like like their whole kind of history available for you and then you're adding to it yeah
4: it's like it's this kind of thing is is almost being lost with the new steam version where you can just save and load and save and load maybe when adventure mode comes back and there's more chronicles people will get back into it. And especially with the fortresses, because like we were saying, it's like these kingdoms and stories and all that kind of stuff. Your fortresses story is like the most interesting one. Right. And and, and in
3: adventure mode for just for people who don't know, it's the, then this world that you've been playing in and building fortresses in and stuff, you then get to explore it as an adventurer in a slightly more conventional, I guess, RPG essentially.
4: (laughs) Right. It's like, uh, it is the size of New Zealand, I guess we you say when, yeah, you, when, yeah. you ta- when you take every step down to every step, the adventurer can take, it's that big. So as long as it's it, so it take that long for you to walk from one edge of the world to the other. And it's got all these cities and stuff in it. It's like, it's really huge. And, but again, um, completely yeah. procedurally generated. You have not built yes, a, yes, yeah, every yeah. time completely
0: different. Yeah. yeah. And there's, I mean, it, it, yeah, it's rough around the edges for sure. And, and like, it's not it's not like a combat game, right? right. It's not, that's obviously a, a big part of it, but you can just be a poet if you want. And you can go and go to different taverns in different cities and people will listen to you, uh, give you feedback sometimes and you can write write new ones. You could go sit under a tree and write a new poem, go to another town or something. It's really, you know, we're trying to, as we expand different parts of the game, it just expands this kind of single character experience Mm -hmm. too and it also lets you see how tied together the world is like the fortresses are these fixed in location that kind of spread big out over time uh over you know a fortress might last 20 years or something whereas these single characters time doesn't pass very much but they're spread out over space and so you really need both modes of the game to tie everything together you know spatially and temporally you can get these really interesting stories to happen and that that happened from the beginning uh on different community forums and stuff, it was it was amazing to watch it happen. It'll be great when Adventure Mode is kind of released on Steam to see a renaissance of that kind of. And thing.
3: And when are, when are you planning on that? Hopefully, when, when aspirationally, when is that? To yeah, aspirationally, to... aspirationally yeah. this
4: it's, year. This yeah, this and it's it's because it's beyond just the art this time. It's like it needs it needs to be ready for prime time. The yeah. Adventure Mode, as it is, it's like you can talk to the characters, but they'll always say stuff like you would talk to him and say, you know, I slew your father or something like that. And the character would just say that was inevitable. Yeah. yeah. It's like some some things they don't have
0: reactions to and stuff. And and we can't fix it all. Got it. Um, But we're going to, we're going to smooth it off as best we can uh, in the time that we allot ourselves.
3: So, It's now commercially available. You can buy it. And, you know, I will say if you have a PC, go out and buy it and try it. You'll you'll be surprised by what the experience is like, Uh, even as we've described it at such great length today. It's um, now got graphics. It's got simple graphics, but it has graphics, not ASCII. It has music. It has, you know, it's a game. Uh, I I guess there's two interrelated questions I have. One is the decision to actually release it commercially as opposed to it being in a permanent beta or early access or whatever and the second question is the decision to then do graphics and music and stuff and how you made that happen
0: yeah i mean it wasn't gonna be i mean the the commercial decision was just practicality like like if you're working for yourselves Uh, you're you're not really able to make it in this country after a certain Mm point, uh, there's not enough money for healthcare not, and there's no retirement anything like that. Right. It's just, it's, it's going to get harder and harder. And we started to experience that.
4: Right. Two people working for, for, uh, you know, contributions for the public that are voluntary. And it's like, um, it wasn't enough to pay the bills. Right. It just wasn't. Yeah. In um, your twenties, it's like exciting. And
3: then by the time you're (laughs) in your forties, it's like, wait a second, what am I doing?
4: Yeah.
0: Yeah, really, it really was. Yeah, getting to that point in some specific ways, and we we're like, okay, uh, going to have to do something about that. And then, then after that, it's kind of it's really well trodden ground not to take a text game and turn it into a graphical game, but just you know what looks commercially viable here. And we had especially an easy time of it in a sense because we have kind of created a genre, right? And almost everybody in our genre has better production values than we do. Right. And also
4: (laughs) having that baked in, having all those games that were kind of inspired by us, made it so that there's this giant audience that could actually get Dwarf Fortress without their brains being scrambled by how hard it is. Right. That was
3: actually how I first learned of it is from the game RimWorld, which is, of course, I think very openly indebted to you guys and what you're doing. And it was like through forums of that or whatever. I was like, oh, there's this other thing. I was like, oh, there's this other thing that's like uh, on a whole other level. Yeah, and now we're in, kind of indebted to RimWorld
0: for having, you know, however millions of Steam players right. just kind of sitting there, uh, ready to give our game a look if they hadn't already, or if they had and bounced off it. Mm. <laughs> Which is more likely.
3: <laughs> well, Tarn, Zach thank you so much for coming on the show to talk about your creative process and Dwarf Fortress. I feel like I could talk to you for hours. Uh, so thank you so much for coming and, and, and sharing your work with us. Yeah, it was great. It was fun. Yeah, yeah, lots of fun. Always was fun to talk about dwarfs and stuff.
2: Up next, Isaac and I will expand on some of the great points that Zach and Tarn brought up in their interview. That was such a fun conversation, and it's so amazing that this game has been around for decades in a way where people could access it for a lot of that time. Working on a project that's this big seems kind of daunting, because when we talk about sharing your work before it's totally done, it's usually with peers rather than just offering it out as a product. Do you think you could ever sustain working on a project for this long in this way?
3: Heck no! (laughs) Or maybe yes, actually, now that I think about it, because like having this podcast is sort of like that. I mean, we are always tinkering Mm. with it and trying to make it better. And we are in open dialogue with our listeners and stuff. But in terms of like a long term creative writing project, that sounds absolutely bonkers to me. But books aren't interactive in the way games are, right? So why would you want to do that in a book?
2: Yeah, but I mean, like, beta is also, I feel like, something that doesn't really exist for any a lot record. of other yeah. mediums. Yeah. We're
3: beta testing our multi-million dollar TV show. Right. And, uh, you know, I mean, there are test screenings, I guess. That's the equivalent,
2: mm-hmm. right? Anyway, what do you do when you're working on something like this, when you're working on a project that changes, like this one did from an RPG to a more of a fortress in such a dramatic way, Of course, the RPG segment is still something that they're working on, as they say. But what we now think of as Door Fortress is mostly the sim part. What do you do when you feel a project is changing? Do you ever try to change it back? Do you leave the old part behind? Is compromise the best option or is it different from project to project? And how can you tell?
3: Those are incredibly difficult and important (laughs) questions because I don't think it's... Any answer for them is true across the board. Mm -hmm. I just don't think it works that way. There are times when you just have to embrace the change Mm -hmm. and go after the new thing. And sometimes that's actually that there's like a shiny thing pointed at your face and you're tired of all the hard work you've put into the old thing. And it's actually a mistake and you need to stick with the old thing. But I think the thing that was key for them listening to this interview again was this moment of, you know, that light bulb moment. Oh, everything I was trying to do in this form or this medium or this genre, whatever can actually be done and done better in this other one. And that's the really important moment to have. And it it's worth saying that it only happened because they were experimenting, which mm. I think is a really vital takeaway no matter what creative field you're in. I, I think we too often get stuck in our head thinking that we can work a problem out cognitively when actually the only way to work it out is to like do something and then see how you feel about it or how it turns out. Mm-hmm you need to do something and then experience something. And and off of that, you'll actually figure out what to do next. I mean, our brains are wonderful places to be in, but I don't actually think we should live there all the time.
2: (laughs) Yeah, sometimes it is hard to get out of your head. Um, It's also so funny that Door Fortress essentially started out as a side project. And it's amazing to hear that they were working on other games while working on what turned out to be this pretty titanic endeavor. How do you prioritize and balance projects that you're working on? How do you keep your ideas separate or do you not have to do that?
3: Yeah, it, you know, I've heard a lot of different creators talk about this problem, you know, because often due to, you know, late stage capitalism and whatever, we're all working on multiple projects at once and how much are they firewalled or do they all bleed into each other or whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, eventually Dwarf Fortress did take over their lives and now it's their life's work. And and one of the things that I found interesting in the interview is that it didn't seem at all weird to them that they had made a choice to work on one video game for the rest of their lives. Yeah, And I think That's because they're the kind of people who would make that choice and I'm just not. (laughs) I'm too much of a magpie. Like, (laughs) I find that the thing that often resolves your questions for me, Karen, are like Mm. really real world logistical and financial realities. Like, I love to try writing a novel and occasionally I get ideas for a novel and I write them down in my notes app or whatever. But... I need to get going on selling my next nonfiction book and doing this podcast and teaching because those are the things that actually put food on the table. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know how I would go about creating the space to do those other things. And I would have to figure that out before I even figure out whether it's a good idea to do so.
2: Yeah, it's really, I don't know. Like sometimes when I say this kind of thing, I feel like it's almost a cop-out answer. But I feel like if you take assessment of what you're working on and what your circumstances are, usually these questions will answer themselves for you to a certain extent. Yeah. But it's also a matter of like, sometimes it's a gamble. Sometimes there's not a clear answer where it's like, I probably will be okay if I take X step, but there's also a chance that it might go really badly. And in that case, you kind of have to weigh how much you're willing to risk and how much you can shore yourself up to a certain degree to ensure that whatever percentage of chance there is a failure is as small as possible. (laughs)
3: Yeah, no, I totally agree. I mean, I think what we're circling around is the real question is like, what is the life I am building? Yeah. Right. Because there's so much more to our lives than just the art we make. And I mean, I think that's true in almost any job. It's like the question at the end of the day is like, what is the life I'm trying to build? And is yeah. that a life I actually want or not? I, certainly when I moved from directing to writing, part of that mm. shift was realizing that the life I was building was one I didn't actually want because I'd be out of town mm. six months a year and mm. and I wanted to have a kid and, you know, so on and so forth. So I do think sometimes we're trying to answer that question about our work when it's really about something else.
2: Yeah, maybe to that. And it's just important to like know what your goals are and how you can work towards them, whether it's very incrementally or taking a big risk and going for it all at once. Yeah, exactly. Um, But it's just important to know what you want out of life, which is sometimes also a hard question to answer. That said, talking about lives touching lives, it was really heartening to hear uh, them talk about community because it's really crucial to build a community, especially for projects that are more on the independent side in order to ensure that you can support yourself in some way. You generally don't think about it as part of the job, but it really is like you can't for a lot of us, like it's not possible to just exist in a vacuum of creativity. Like you have to engage with your audience and build your audience. How do you delegate time for that? And how Mm. do you build that kind of thing? Or is it possible to ignore it?
3: Yeah. I don't think it's possible to ignore it unless you're like super duper successful and it will just yeah. take care of itself. Right. And then someone is going to create a fan site for you and then they're <laughs> going to be the people, you know, I mean, that sort of thing where it's like, oh, the fandom just exists and it's doing its thing. I mm-hmm. mean, Zach and Tarn put a lot of work into their community. It is not yeah. just building the website. They have, you know, frequent AMAs. They're all, I was they're honestly dispi- shocked
2: by how much work they said they did about community. Yeah.
3: And, you know, that community, those community forums on their website, they're the content moderators for them.
2: Mm. So, like,
3: you know, they're the ones who have to see all the terrible Nazi images and delete them when trolls come around. And yeah, stuff yeah, like yeah, so yeah. It's a lot. Um I have a much lower grade version of this. I get the occasional email from a reader or a listener of working and I interact with people on Twitter. And if I visit a school or give a talk or something or do a book reading, you know, I try to be as generous as possible with people there. I probably should be more routine about it. Like these are the, you know, every Thursday when I'm done recording working, I then answer the email and go on Twitter or whatever. I am (laughs) just not wired to obey those kinds of routines and schedules. Yeah. Like I think June could do that. You know what I mean? But like, it's I also can't.
2: like a lot of emotional labor. Like there's no totally. way to discount that.
3: You know, I was talking to an actor who recently started doing conventions. He'd never done them before. And he told me that, you know, it's a really gratifying experience because people are only there because they love you and they love the work you've done. And they right. want to like be in the same room as you, but it's also really draining because you want to give something back to them. You want each person who's, you know, you're signing a picture of yourself or whatever, and you want each one of them to feel like they had a meaningful interaction with you. Yeah. And then at the same time, you're like, also you have to pay $5 for it or whatever. Cause conventions <laughs> charge for that sort of thing. So it's a really weird experience, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that though we should try to give back to the people who are engaging with our work. I mean, our work means something to them and that's beautiful. That's like so energizing, I think, Mm long-term. But I do want to say that there are particularities to that in terms of my being a cisgender, white, Jewish, straight guy. Like I do not get the kinds of emails that like, attractive younger women who are friends of mine get you know from people you know where there's always like a negging tone to whatever the person is writing to you or whatever and you know i know that like from experience from talking to people that i i mostly only get the good stuff i very rarely get the bad
2: yeah and it's tough like you you have no personal power over that (laughs) like there's no way for me to say only send me nice messages (laughs) like there's no way for me to control that i just have to deal with all of it
3: Right. No, I agree. I agree. But if you are writing to working at slate.com, dot com, make sure to say nice things about Karen. That's that's the and oh, and okay. everyone. Nice, say nice things P.S. about all of Karen us, please.
2: About. We we love to get gassed up.
3: <laughs> it's true. It's true.
2: Well, that aside, to go back to the conversation that we were talking about, I really appreciated your discussion about jumping into the game, too, which brings me to ask, for someone listening to this podcast who might never have played a game before, would you say that this game is easy to get into, or is there a high barrier for entry?
3: (laughs) Don't start with this one. Do not. (laughs) Um, Although, actually, what you could do, which is really fun, this is what I would say. If you want to experience Dwarf Fortress and have, like, zero experience of video games or very little. Mm watch streams of it on YouTube mm. or read things that people have written about it. Because even that will give you a sense of what a bizarre experience this this game is. <laughs> because the truth is, the difficulty is part of the point of the game. Mm. You know, the difficulty is why there's a community. That community formed in part to help people figure out how to play the game and how to survive in a world where, quote unquote, failure is fun, you know?
2: When was the first time you played Dwarf Fortress? How long have you been playing it?
3: I haven't been playing it for that long, um, because I only just figured out how to play it on my Mac, which involves oh. like <laughs> streaming it through a third party thing called Boosteroid. Oh, boy. That's Wait, I guess f-
2: this is also a good question for this. For anyone who is interested in playing this, what platforms is it available It's only on, on
3: PC. It's only on Windows PC. Okay. And so I play it through something called Boosteroid, which is a, mm. a, a their computer is playing the game and I am streaming it via <sighs> the web and then giving instructions to it. Uh, so I haven't been playing it for that long, but I've been watching people play it for quite a while and talking to people who play it. Mm. And it really is just like a... It's just a weird experience.
2: We really hope that you've enjoyed the show. And if you have, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and then you'll never miss an episode. And just a reminder that by joining Slate Plus, you'll get ad-free podcasts, extra segments on shows like The Waves and Culture Gap Fest and our show. And you'll never hit a paywall on the Slate site. To learn more, go to slate.com slash working plus.
3: Thanks to Zach and Tarn Adams and special thanks to our producer, Cameron Drews. You know, if a giant carp ate Cameron, I would definitely <laughs> force reload an old save to get it back. <laughs> We'll be back next week with June's conversation with Oscar-winning filmmaker Sean Hader. Until then, get back to work.